In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. please be seated. Well, good morning. Glad you're with us on this beautiful, almost summer morning. <clears throat> Let me invite you to take out this buff-colored handout. You'll find it very helpful. There are lots of scriptures in here. I'll refer to some of them, but not necessarily read them all. So I think you'll find that this is helpful as we move on. Now, we are told that in Acts... Um, during the 40 days that followed Easter morning, Jesus presented, him a lot, presented himself alive to his disciples repeatedly. And he did this by many indisputable proofs of the certainty of the resurrection. And then Jesus ascended to the Father. Well, if resurrection day occurred on the first day of the week, that is a Sunday then Ascension Day must always fall on a Thursday, 40 days later. So there never really is an Ascension Sunday, although sometimes we call that, although more properly it's called the Sunday following Ascension. And what is the celebration of the Ascension all about? Now what is this strange doctrine of Jesus' departure to somewhere? What is the ascension, and why has discussion of it almost fallen away from evangelical preaching? The idea of a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ going anywhere is kind of curious, don't you think? In German, the ascension goes by the rather peculiar name Himmelfart. Literally, a heavenly journey. Now, from the biblical evidence it seems that the gospel can be shared properly, almost completely, without any reference at all to this ascension. The ascension is not mentioned at all in either Matthew or Mark's gospel. John's gospel only alludes to the ascension, yet twice in Luke and Acts, we're given the story of Jesus' ascension. So what is it? And what are the basic facts? Where did Jesus go? What is it that happened? Well, if we're going to answer these questions, we have to look at the only two passages that discuss them, and that is in Luke 24 and in Acts chapter 1. Now, in Luke 24, verse 50, we read, And he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Well, we do know a little something about Bethany. <coughs> Bethany was a tiny little village up over the top of the Mount of Olives and a little ways down the other side. It's about two miles as the crow flies from the Temple Mount. And it was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But heaven, now where exactly is heaven? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You know, it's not clear exactly where Jesus went, or if he went anywhere at all, only that a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, what we can discern from the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, we can say this, that Jesus was raised in a whole new body. Undoubtedly, it was Jesus' body that was raised, right? There weren't any grave clothes, there weren't anything but grave clothes left in the grave. And when the disciples saw him, they recognized him. Yes, it is Jesus. Jesus ate with them. Jesus drank with them. And on one occasion, Jesus actually fixed them breakfast. Jesus himself said to them, touch me, and you can see that I am not a ghost. And sure enough, when they touched him, he had flesh and bones. And yet... His body was made up of a whole new substance, unlike anything that anybody had ever seen before. He could walk through walls and through locked doors. He could, he could vanish according to his own will and his own desire from their sight. You see, Jesus had become the first man fit for the coming spiritual kingdom of God. So from all this, it seems to me anyway, that it's safe to conclude that the ascension was not a journey to anywhere, at least not in this present world. Jesus didn't need to go anywhere. Rather, the ascension was an unmistakable illustration for the sake of the apostles and all those who believe in Jesus who would follow after them. In fact, his ascension was accompanied by angelic instruction about the nature and glory and current occupation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, if the ascension was then primarily a symbolic event, well, what did it symbolize? Why did the Father take the Son up in glory the way he did? Well, I've given you several examples there in your handout of the apostles telling the story of Jesus without talking about the ascension. As I mentioned before, they always include the resurrection. If you're going to tell the complete story of Jesus, you always include the resurrection, but not always the ascension. So the question would be, is the ascension just an optional doctrine, something we can do without? Take it or leave it. Well, the story of Jesus can be told without the ascension, but the ascension is the rest of the story. The Son of God was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He lived among us teaching and healing. He died on Calvary to pay the price for our sins. And he was raised to newness of life. 
But what now? Who is Jesus today? The ascension answers that question. Let me give you some things that I believe the ascension means to us. This is the first one. Right now and at this very moment, Jesus is preeminent above every other thing in the universe. Jesus is not just an important feature of life or even the most important religious thing. He is the single most prominent fact of the created world. That makes him the starting point for all human reckoning of whatever kind. Nothing is more important among planets and moons and stars than Jesus the Christ. Scripture says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In everything, he is preeminent. No angel, demon, power, or authority is more important or must be reckoned with more carefully than Jesus. Now secondly, it seems to me that the ascension of Jesus demonstrates that he has all rule and authority. Friends, he is controlling all things. Now you and I have been told two different yet nonetheless false stories about the world around us. Now the one story goes like this. The world is just a mass of atoms. Mindless, uncontrollable chance at the quantum level is responsible for the way things are. It's like the bumper sticker says, stuff happens. Now, on the other hand, some of us have been taught this story that malevolent, dark forces influence, harass, and harm our lives. But you see, neither one of those stories is true. The ascension teaches us that God has exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed on him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. This day, today, Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And not only today, but he will be forever. All angels, good and bad, all authorities and powers are subject to him. The ascension teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is controlling everything you will encounter this week and everything that you will ever encounter. 
Now, the third thing that the ascension teaches us is that Jesus is ruling over all things on behalf of the Father's will. Jesus is Lord of all the created order. But he is not capricious or arrogant or selfish. He does not rule according to his own whim, but according to the will of the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ rules over the created universe to carry out God's good providence. He is carrying out the will of the Father today to provide for the needs of every living creature. Do you believe that? Do you believe it when you get to the end of the month? And he is doing this for your good and for the Father's glory. Now, how do you know that the Father's will is good for you? How do you know that it is benevolent and not malevolent towards you? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Consider what Jesus has done for you so far. Jesus came according to the Father's will to save you. He did this at the price of his own life. He did this with great suffering and humility. And now that he's exalted, and now that all things are subject to him, he will surely continue in the same way he began. He will continue to accomplish the Father's will for your good and for God's glory. Now, the fourth thing that the ascension shows us is that Jesus has been exalted into the very presence of the Father. And he is there as your advocate and intercessor. I don't know what kind of state you woke up this morning in. I don't know if you were at peace or if your heart was troubled, but listen to this. Whatever demonic forces are there before God to condemn you, Jesus is there to plead your case before the Father. He is there to declare you as his own and belonging to him alone. Whatever sins may be currently weighing you down and burdening your conscience, Jesus is there to offer his own blood for your soul and to make peace between you and the Father. Fifthly, we find in the story of the Ascension that there is this intimate connection between Jesus' departure and his never-leaving presence. Kind of strange, isn't it? Before his death, Jesus made a promise. He said in John 14, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus said, I will never leave or forsake you. And that's a promise he made to every single believer. If you're a believer this morning, that's his promise to you. But you see, there's only one possible way that Jesus could have 
fulfilled and fulfilled that promise. For Jesus has a body. The God-man cannot possibly be present everywhere. He could not be present for a suffering Christian in a Chinese prison and for a Maori believer in the South Pacific and a Russian believer in Siberia all at the same moment. He could not do that because he has a body. Therefore, being exalted to God's right hand, Jesus has sent us a helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, this Spirit is not a different helper than Jesus. In fact, Acts 16 says he is called the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit brings to every believer the fullness of the exalted Lord. And as Jesus sits at the right hand of God, his Spirit is here bringing you the fullness of Christ right at this moment, and he can do so for every single believer across the planet all at the same time. Here's implication number six of this wonderful story. Jesus' exaltation is evidence of God's ongoing visitation in this present age. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus has not disappeared somewhere. Our leader has not abandoned us. Do you remember Band of Brothers? I think it was number six. <laughs> 101st Airborne, Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge. It was brutally cold. The Germans were shelling the American army every single day. Men were dying, and Lieutenant Dyke of Easy Company was nowhere to be found. He was hiding in his foxhole. The leader had gone off and left the men on their own. Well, Christian, that is not the case with your leader. He is watching over you every single minute of every single day. He is in the process of bringing all his enemies and yours under his feet. He is watchful, he is caring, and he is also storing up wrath and judgment for that day. Not one thing is escaping his notice now. And that brings us to implication number seven of the ascension. Jesus' ascension is a promise of his glorious return and judgment. In the same magnificent way in which he departed, Jesus will return with the clouds of heaven and the hosts of heaven to establish visibly and unmistakably and eternally his reign over all created things, and he will do so on behalf of the Father. Well then, Christian, what should be your response to this wonderfully symbolic end of Jesus' earthly ministry? Here's the first implication, I think. Be prepared to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You know, far too many Christians attempt to live the Christian life without the power of Jesus in them. The normal Christian life is a spirit-filled life. And you know what that means? The normal Christian life is a supernatural life. You have not come this morning to the Kiwanis Club. This is not the American Legion. And this is not Gwinnett County Soccer Club. You have come to the eternal mystery of the God of the whole universe. And you have come to the power of the new and soon-to-appear kingdom of God. That kingdom has broken into the affairs and ordinary dramas of everyday life. So don't expect things to be the same. You have not come to business as usual. You have come to an encounter with the divine king of heaven and earth. So this morning, I invite you, look beyond the clouds which have taken him up out of your sight. Look for his spirit to break in this week into the stuff that you and I have to do. And secondly, respond as the disciples did. Respond with worship and praise and adoration of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the king of the ages. Amen.